Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 509. Read the rule book. Hello, Big Chillians, and welcome back to The Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Eddie. Eddie, how's it going? Yeah. Are you are you heartbroken over the the breaking news this morning? What was the breaking news this morning? Brady and Giselle oh. have ended their thirteen year marriage. Uh, filed for divorce. No, I mean, yeah, that hasn't personally affected me. No, but it's sad to see, right? To see someone going through some hard times, and obviously, combined with the fact that the wheels are well and truly coming off the Tampa Bay Buccaneers season. Although we spoke about that on the last episode, right? It's not a surprise that they lost the Ravens and things might get a little bit worse before they get better for them. But I'll still say, I think they can make, I I think they'll win the division. I'll stick with that. I mean, the issue is who else is going to win it, right? Yes. I mean, that's the only reason I have any confidence in them. It's, it's not so much because I believe they're going to get a lot better. It's because I just don't see any of the other teams rising to the challenge. So that kind of got me to thinking with the way that the divisions kind of fluctuate over the years with, you know, the NFC East being one of the worst teams in the past few years. And then, you know, now they're a better team. And then now you have this conference, which had been good for a while, or this division is now bad. Should the NFL eliminate divisions and just have an NFC and an AFC and the eight best teams from each make it no matter what division they're in? I guess from a sense of fairness, maybe. At the same time, I guess the thing that's nice about the division, right, is that you guarantee that at least the teams that you're directly competing with, you get to play twice a season. And as it's not feasible for them to play every other NFC team or any other, every other AFC team, the schedule could really play in your favor where, it, you know, you just look at a huge disparity in terms of difficulty of what the teams are up against, which you still have already. You know, like there's no, there's teams who miss out on the playoffs and have a significantly harder schedule or who miss out with a better record because they're in a, in a, in like a division that has a better team in it. But I think it would be a harder pill to swallow if you were doing it purely based on conference and you're not playing everyone else. Yeah. I, it's just, it's just frustrating sometimes when, when you see, you know, we're going to see a team that's going to get in that, isn't very deserving of getting in. I mean, like, you know, we're saying now the Bucks are going to get in. The Bucks aren't deserving. And even that they're not deserving, they still might make a run in the playoffs yeah. just because they have Tom Brady. But should they, you know, like, should they be allowed to do that having played so poorly in the regular season? I mean, it's the downside to the playoff approach, right? Is what if you, as long as you can get a ticket into the playoffs, you've got a shot. And particularly in one game eliminations, you know, you can argue a little bit in the, in the NBA or in the NHL, or in the MLB, because they are multi-game series, you still expect the better team to have a pretty significant advantage, particularly in the NBA. In the NFL, yeah, it's a one game, something fluky could happen. You know, the Bucks could have a, a defensive and a special teams touchdown in every playoff game and somehow end up winning the Super Bowl. I don't think you can have a playoff system and think that you it produces the best champion year in year out 
Except college football. Yeah. That's that's <laughs> solid. Well, I mean, the college football, in a sense, kind of solves that problem to a degree through the, you know, having a committee. Like, the Bucs aren't making the playoffs in the college football system, right? They're, they're already out of the running. No, there is some old guy there who's who will make the argument that, no, Tom Brady – Trust me, if he makes the playoffs, he'll make a run. I believe in Tom Brady. I don't. I don't think Condoleezza Rice would like Tom Brady that much. But, but no, I um, yeah, I think yeah, it's true. But I, I think I don't know. I mean, the solution in a sense might be to expand the divisions. Like to, if you combined a couple of the divisions. So if instead of having four team divisions, maybe if you had eight team, you know, you merge you know, two of the sort of two divisions together. And then you said, okay, you have to play each of these teams twice and you only play. I'd be almost be in favor of the fact of no like cross conference play. The idea that the only time an NFC and an AFC team ever play each other is in the Super Bowl. I think that would add to the novelty of the Super Bowl a lot. Right. But uh, I, if you made it eight teams and then you could, have them play. I mean, that's what 14 of your, uh, your regular seasons, 14 games from your regular season schedule. And then you get three extra games. You'd probably say that would produce truer playoff results, but I don't know. I don't think it's a problem that necessarily needs to be solved. Yeah. I mean, that would make it a little better. Maybe I think, you know, doing the eight, the only thing I think you lose, I do agree you have more novelty than when the NFC plays the AFC. But then you lose some of those nice matchups where you have two really good teams, you know, from the AFC and NFC that have like, oh, this could be a preview for the Super Bowl. And it like gets people hyped up and it's fun to see. Or like this is a rematch from last year's Super Bowl or things like that. So you lose a little bit of that. But at the end of the day, if you could tell me that you're going to give a more truer playoff experience by eliminating that i think i'd be okay with it <laughs> yeah and and look there would still be issues right because say you combined the nfc south this year with the nfc north are we loving the playoff results yikes you know what i mean so it's still yeah there's eight teams and stuff but it's you know it, it we're still not looking at two great candidates coming out of that combination so i think you'd you'd still you'd be just the, the issue would be evolving but it wouldn't be solved. So we're, you know, we're obviously recording this Friday morning, which because, you know, we just mentioned the Buccaneers wheels have fully come off. Watching the Bucks ravens game, uh, something happened that happens very often that just kind of drives me insane for the level of, uh, I guess, practices and commitment and, you know, all the time and effort that these players put into the game that players still don't know some of the very basic rules. Uh, and the one I'm kind of referring to is Lamar Jackson uh, went back to make a pass, kind of scrambled around a little bit, ended up out of the pocket, but then threw the ball about seven yards behind the line of scrimmage out of bounds. And they threw an intentional grounding and he almost like lost a gasket screaming at the ref that he was out of the pocket. He was out of the pocket. He's out of the pocket. But yet, it's a very simple rule. You must be out of the pocket, and you must throw past the imaginary, like fully stretched out line of the line of scrimmage. So it goes into the 
like out of bounds area, but you still have to make it up over the line of scrimmage. It's a very in, easy unless there's a receiver in the vicinity. Yes, unless there's a receiver in the vicinity. But he was arguing that you know he was out of the pocket and he just threw it away and that's fine. But it's not. You have to be over the line of scrimmage, and it blows my mind that a NFL quarterback who has been an MVP. He's obviously someone who has this type of rule affect him because he's scrambling constantly, but also just the fact that he's been in the NFL for what, seven years now, and he still doesn't fully know the rule. Like I would understand if it were a very obscure, obscure rule, you know, like even yes, like Sunday I was playing hockey and I had asked someone, you know, like if the puck goes over the bench and I like on the, I'm on the ice and I reach over and like grab the puck. And kind of bring it back before it like hits a player or a bench. Does that count? Because I I don't know if you can do that like a home run kind of thing. And obviously, and the rule is actually you can't. Like it's an imaginary like glass that's there. So that like would be more obscure. Probably very rarely happens. But an intentional grounding happens all the time. So that it just blows my mind that athletes sometimes just don't know the basics of the sport that they've invested their entire life playing. No, a hundred percent. I mean, it it stuns me. We discuss it pretty regularly, right? Not even just athletes. They're kind of fans who watch the sport week in, week out and still have a very limited understanding of pretty common rules. But I mean, I think to your point, the place where we really saw that this week was in the Champions League in the Tottenham uh, sporting match when Tottenham had a goal in the last second disallowed for offside. And Eric Dyer and a number of other Tottenham players were complaining to the referee that Harry Kane could not have been offside because the ball went backwards, and that is not. Why, why don't you explain? Why don't you explain the goal a little bit? Because I'm there's probably a lot of people in a, in the states that haven't seen it because you have to have like Paramount Plus subscription to watch it, which is a pain in the ass. Yeah, I mean it's a hard goal to explain, but basically you have in the last second of the match you have a cross come into the box. One player head the ball back across the goal face of the goal. It then he had a defender directly in front of him, and so it it deflected off of the defender and into the path of Harry Kane, who, who put it in. And uh, the two questions were whether or not Harry Kane was offside, and also whether the ball touching the defender had then made him, played him onside. Now, the rule in terms of the defender, it has to be an intentional act. And because the defender was, you know, two feet away and having a ball headed into him, into him it's impossible to stay that, say that he was intentionally sort of deflecting the ball in the direction in which he did. And then the other question really became the offside law is comprised of basically two principles. One, you have to have two opposition players between you and the goal in order to be onside. And the other thing that can play you onside is you can be behind the ball at the time that it's played. And in this instance, so then Harry Kane was clearly in front of there were not two defenders between him and the goal, but the question was whether or not he was behind the ball. Now, clearly, a lot of people, including some Tottenham players, misunderstood the concept of behind the ball, thinking of it as if the ball goes backwards. I can kind of understand how someone thinks that because the idea is if you've played the ball backwards, it implies that the person you've passed to was probably behind the ball. So I can kind of see how people get there in as a general rule of thumb for thinking, all right, the ball went backwards, that player was probably behind the player who played the ball. But that's not the rule. I've never actually even heard anyone in the fallout from all of this, a lot of professionals have said, well, that's how we always interpreted the rule. I'd never heard anyone say this before. This seems insane to me. In all the time that I've played football, watched football, 
it was clear to me that you had to be level or behind the ball. In this instance, Harry Kane was fractionally in front of the ball. I mean, it's his knee that is centimeters, millimeters in front of where the ball, when it was played from. So, which is a shame. I think the real issue more with that was the fact that it took three or four minutes to assess a last second goal. So you, it's just another instance of VAR kind of ruining the experience of football because you celebrated what you think is your team winning a game. And then three minutes later, they tell you, oh, actually, no, sorry, he was offside. Free kick, game over. You know, that's, it's not a great experience. Three, three minutes is, is generous. Yeah, it took about five, I think. It was more like seven, eight minutes. Yeah, it took a really <laughs> long time for reasons I also don't understand. The excuse as to why it took so long was them trying to not only determine the offside, but also d- decide whether or not the, the sort of defender's touch had meant that everyone was sort of reset the play and everyone was onside. I don't know why it took so long when the player had the ball headed into him from two feet away. I don't know why that took so long to determine whether or not he did it on purpose. Like he clearly didn't, but uh, yeah, it's just, it's the right decision. This is the issue that VAR has. It's the right decision. It's just a question of does always having the right decision ruin your football experience. Like if that's a world cup final and you know, you've got players, you had Tottenham players and coaching staff running onto the pitch to celebrate. They thought they'd scored a winning goal that had guaranteed that they were going through to the next round of the Champions League. And then you had to tell them, no, sorry, yeah, everyone get off. No goal, one all, and the game's going to be ended in a draw because that was it. Yeah, it was very deflating. I mean, I, I was watching it live, um, not even really invested in it, but did want to see Spurs move on and you know, when, when Harry Kane scored that, it was, it was, it was exciting. Cause it's, you know, it's Harry Kane and he's coming through again at the clutch at the very end. And, you know, even I was kind of swept up and in, into it. And then all of a sudden you see, uh Oh, you see the VAR pop up and then you sit there for 10 minutes and wait for the result. And it's, it is completely deflating. I mean, it, it takes away from the excitement of the, of the match for sure. And, and it's, it's a hard problem to solve because you can't have, um, unless it's a, unless you adopt the approach of, you know, uh, challenging plays, and then you can accept the fact that you've run out of challenges, therefore an incorrect decision is tolerable. But without that principle, how can you have VAR not make the right decision? Like you can't, and everyone has kind of, particularly, obviously, I only consume English speaking media for the most part. Everyone speaks about it of how this ruined the experience for, uh, Tottenham fans, Tottenham players, etc. From a sporting perspective, and not I don't mean that from like a sporting perspective as in the principles of fair play, but the actual football club sporting that they were playing against. Formerly known as Sporting exactly, Lisbon. Commonly <laughs> referred to mistakenly as Sporting Lisbon. From their perspective, it's the correct decision and it keeps their Champions League hopes very much more alive than they would have been and, you know, they would have walked away from that saying, how did you let a, a goal that was offside stand? So it's a difficult one. How do you solve the problem of both delivering correct decisions and not ruining the experience with the delays? I think a lot of sports face this issue and some sports, just because of how suited they are to video reviews, have been able to implement that approach without it causing too many issues. And it's not as if 
you know, people don't tolerate mistakes. It's not as if we could suddenly get a rate, get rid of VAR, then you'd have fans complaining about incorrect decisions, which they already complain about, but you'd have them complaining about that way more on a consistent basis. And I guess before we move on, were there any other Champions League things you'd like to address? I mean, Liverpool came through and not that it really mattered. I think they were going to move on no matter what. Um, well, actually, yeah, they're probably still going to move on no matter what. But um, I guess Barcelona not making it is a big one. Um, anything else that you would like to discuss? Juventus also not making it, although Juventus have been trashed this year. But <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in general, yeah, it's the failure of a couple of really big teams to make it through to the next round of the Champions League. And, you know, you, you've got... Atletico, Juventus, and Barcelona, three teams who over the last 10, 15 years, you would have just penciled into the next round and probably not even just the next round, a couple rounds more. So you've got three pretty, pretty big teams. And the Atletico game obviously also ended in high drama with them missing a penalty in the sort of 99th minute and then missing two chances in the sort of on the rebounds, the follow-ups from the penalty to also score. But and and I think for for me that's probably the worst of the cases of teams that failed to make it just because their group was for the most part a lot weaker than you know Barcelona yes you expect Barcelona to make it because they're Barcelona but they're in a group with you know with some quality there and and one of the three big ones had to fall yeah they were in the group and it of happened death. to be Barcelona in that one but so it's not surprising and you would have said coming into this group of death they were the third best team based on last season. Like it's not surprising to see Inter and Bayern being better than them. I guess it's the nature of the defeats that they've had, and also their league form has been pretty good, and that hasn't translated to good Champions League performances. And then there's also the larger discussion about how they've mortgaged their future with their financial approach. This loss of revenue, of Champions League revenue, is going to hurt them even more. This is a lot of money that's that will have, they would have probably been forecasting. I'm sure when they did all of their budgets and projections, financial projections, they would have expected to have knockout stage Champions League media revenue and attendance revenue. I'm sure they will have done that. So, Whoops. Yeah. Just going to have to move that decimal yeah. over and fake the numbers. No, we're going to have to have some more creative accounting coming from Barcelona, and they're probably going to have to, I'm sure in this summer, we'll probably see something similar again, where they might get into bed with another venture capital firm and, and you know, sell a percentage of their future income. They they may have got themselves now into a situation where that's the only way they can keep themselves running. So the Barcelona one is just interesting from that perspective to see what actual long-term impact this has on the club. But, you know, the Juventus one, they're just having a kind of season from hell. I'm sure they'll solve that in the, in the upcoming transfer windows at some point. And Atletico, yeah, it's surprising given how relatively easy their group is. Part of their problems was that early, that weird issue they had with Griezmann, but they've solved that by buying him from Barcelona now permanently. But yeah, I mean, it's, I guess the, the larger question comes when you have these three teams that have massively failed, they'll now enter the Europa League. So the Europe's second tier club contest. And then the debate becomes as to whether or not that's fair that these, these clubs fail in the group stages and then get to enter another European competition and get to potentially win a European Cup still and you know get some revenue from that, even if it's not nearly as significant as what they get from the Champions League. Yeah, and then I guess 
also in reference to that, you have uh, La Liga, which is normally one of the, you know, obviously major leagues is only putting forth Real Madrid into the to the next round for Champions League, which is a huge drop off from previous years. So only have one club uh, represent the entire uh, league, La Liga. So uh, not not a good year. Uh, on the whole for the Spanish football. No, and some surprising teams making it through to the next round, right? With Club Bruges, I mean, for them to make it through to the knockout stages, I know they are one of those, a lot of people had them as dark horses for being competitive in the Champions League, not in terms of in the latter stages, but certainly in the group stages. But Club Bruges making it through is a surprise. And, you know, you're going to have, there's going to be some friendly draws, for for one or two teams out there in the in the first round of the knockout stages, but yeah, it's the the, the poor poor showing from La Liga and even to a certain extent Syria is 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 not great. Um, and then you know, we'll, but obviously, I guess good to see all the Premier League teams coming through. And then the 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 league that really has performed badly is the Scottish Premier League, which is. Constantly advocating for the fact that both Rangers and Scotland would be competitive if they were stuck into the English Premier League. And on the basis of their showing in the Champions League, that is not the case. Uh, I mean, if. <laughs> yeah, they were combined uh, four for four and 29 on their goals, yes. goals for and goals against. Which is. <laughs> so not very impressive. Which, I mean, in fairness, Celtic are doing some of the heavy lifting there because they scored three and only conceded 10. So Rangers really let them down. But. I mean, it's it's hard to look at that. And again, the, the argument about bringing the yeah, Scottish team <laughs> not a good no. showing. <laughs> the argument, I'm sure that listeners will get upset if they're Scottish. But like, I know that part of the argument is that if they were given, you know, four or five seasons in the in the Premier League and with the additional revenue and the additional ability to bring in players through the attraction of playing in a more competitive league, that they would become competitive in the Premier League fairly quickly. But certainly, based on this showing. If you put them into the Premier League, unless you guarantee that they were not going to be relegated in those first four or five seasons, they might go down anyway. So, you know, this is for Rangers who have fought hard to get themselves back into the Champions League to then have that kind of showing is uh, a little bit embarrassing. I mean, at least they can say they were one nil up on Liverpool. Yeah. Uh, yes. You know, 20 minutes into the yeah. match. And then, <laughs> and then ignore the next seven goals. But, uh, no, it's true. And look, there's also discussions. You know, people have raised the point a little bit touching on the fact that we've talked about the failure of Barcelona's failure. There's quiet murmurs about the fact that the failure of the likes of Juventus and Barcelona will encourage the idea of the Super League, European Super League, being represented and reformatted because this will be an example of these clubs unhappy with the fact that they've missed out on the significant revenue that they feel they are entitled to. So I think we should probably prepare ourselves for some rebranded version of the European Super League to sort of sneak its way back into the papers and media discussion over the next sort of few months. I've quietly gotten rid of the live talk for the last few podcasts, and now you got a Super League mate? <laughs> Sorry, yeah. <laughs> it's all right. I can bring live up later. Worth noting, I guess, if we're, t- we're dedicating a little bit of time to the sports we don't focus on so much, the uh, cricket... World Cup, which we made mention of on a previous episode, which is sort of midway through the group stages, I suppose, at this point. And it has had some high drama, some good matches. A couple matches go down to the final ball 
India-Pakistan produced a pretty thrilling finish to their match, which is great to see just because they play each other so rarely because of the political dynamic of the and relationship between the two countries. So they only play each other in ICC tournaments in neutral venues. They will never play each other in unilateral competitions. But so that's good to see. But it is a tournament that is being marred by bad weather, which I find interesting. It could have been predicted, right? They're playing it in Australia and it is still not the height of summer there. So it's a season in which they could expect some rain, even if they've had way more rain than they normally would have had. I think I saw that at some of the grounds that where they are playing these World Cup matches, they've had more rain this week than they would normally expect to have in a three-month period. So it's a little bit unfortunate. But I do find it interesting because every time a tournament gets held in England and there's always rain, no matter what time of year you play it, there's discussions about, oh, you shouldn't host an international tournament in England because it will always be ruined by rain. And it's unacceptable to have these matches you know, end in draws because of the fact that you're not able to play a full fixture. Not so much talk about that when it's Australia hosting and rain in Australia. So that's just people have to accept, I think, that it rains pretty much everywhere and can rain at times of the year that you don't really expect it to. Yeah. I mean, and not even at the matches end in draws, sometimes they end in losses due to the uh, calculations, even when your team is starting to heat up, yeah. which happened to England against Ireland, which was very unfortunate. But uh, I, I, England is not sitting in a great position right now, having lost that match to Ireland because of a rain, half rain out, I guess. And now, you know, having all these other matches being rained out. Well, England are looking at a very realistic possibility. Obviously, two teams go through from their group and going into it, you would have expected that it was them, Australia and New Zealand competing for those two spots. There is a very realistic possibility that those three teams finish level on points now, assuming England can beat New Zealand. And if that is the case, then you're suddenly in a situation where their net run rate will be the determining factor. And that's a real mess like that. You never really want to be in a situation because it's such a, even if you're a big cricket fan, it's such a sort of slightly complicated idea to wrap your mind around in terms of tr- how you calculate it and how you determine it. I mean, it's it's obviously the formula is pretty straightforward, but just it's not one of those things as a fan that you can watch and go like, oh, they clearly have a really good net run rate. It's not like goals scored, goal to, goals against. So it will be, I'm sure people won't love it to have a rain affected World Cup that then gets determined by something that's not really linked to how well you've played necessarily will cause a lot of issues. Yeah, I mean, I always say when I go out Friday night with my friends, the last thing we want to do is get caught in a net run rate. I mean, that that could be a night ruiner for us. <laughs> it's solid advice to live by. I guess one story, a little bit shocking coming out of Italy, is that uh, Pablo Mari, who's an Arsenal player on loan in Italy, was stabbed uh, yesterday in an attack in a supermarket. He, along with a couple other people, one of whom died, were stabbed by seemingly someone with some mental health issues who went to a supermarket and, and, and with a knife and attacked a few people. He seemingly has been relatively fortunate. He was stabbed in the back, but has only had some muscle damage and doesn't, seem, doesn't look as if it's anything life-threatening or serious or anything that will impact his long-term career or life experience. 
but obviously unfortunate to see, you know, a supermarket employee was killed and and a couple of the other people who were stabbed are in much more serious condition. I'm actually surprised at how little attention this story is getting. I know he's not the most famous footballer on earth, but it's making the news, but it's not exactly being spoken about in the way that you would expect to when you have a professional athlete who's been stabbed in a supermarket. Yeah, it was pretty crazy when when I first saw it because it popped up on ESPN like on the bottom and I was thinking he had been like in a robbery or something because that's also another thing that's been happening a lot recently is professional athletes have been being targeted in Europe, you know, and being robbed or held at gunpoint or or whatever um in like targeted attacks. So I thought it was another one of those. But then when I kind of then as I was like processing this, I was like, well, is he that famous enough that like he would be a target, you know, like is, is he walking around with multiple Rolexes on? I don't know. And then once you actually though saw the story, it was pretty crazy that it happened to just be that he was a random person in, in a, you know, a wrong place, wrong time kind of event and had nothing to do with the fact that he was an athlete or potentially has a good amount of money compared to the people around him. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he's got enough money to be a, a target, but yeah, you're right. I mean, yeah, just in a supermarket with his wife and child and stabbed in the back as he was pushing his cart down the aisle. It's a, a pretty, pretty shocking story, but it, obviously good to see that he should be okay. Sad to see that someone died and that other people are in pretty serious condition. But Well, how do you want to, how do, yeah, from how do we transition <laughs> from, from stabbings and deaths to, the NFL, yeah, it's not easy. But I, you know, you can just count on me to bring the more depressing stories from the world of sport to, to the to the table to be discussed. But yeah, I get- well, let me br- let me bring it up. <laughs> I uh, read a report. We often talk about food, <laughs> so <laughs> I'll bring us with a nice uh, fast food story to uplift us. Although for many people, it might not be uplifting because McDonald's has announced that they are going to release the McRib sandwich again coming up soon, but that this will be the last time they re-release the McRib sandwich. <laughs> Who is still believing this? Yeah, I don't know. I've never I've never had a McRib. So I've never even understood the the hype. I'm sure it's fine, you know, like I mean it's I'm sure like anything from McDonald's, it's decently tasty, but I'm not gonna lose my mind over it. But I don't like that they even call the McRib because when when I think of McRib, I think it's gonna be like ribs, but it's not. It's well, you like can't have, the rib bones have been removed. So why don't they just call it like pork? Yeah, but you can't have <laughs> a bone in sandwich. sandwich, Frank. I know, but then why call it the McRib? That's like a terrible name. Well, because it's the style of cooking, right, and preparation, and they're supposed to be ribs. I mean, they're at least meat that's been reformed into something that resembles the shape of ribs. But I get what you're saying. But I mean, <laughs> I, I mean. I think that would be my larger issue is they're not actual, as far as I'm aware, right? They're not actual ribs. It is just kind of been shaped to look like ribs more. I think that would be my, I'm, I'm not I, expecting. I always thought it was rib meat. I'm sure it's rib. Reshaped into a rib shape form. Yeah, <laughs> but you see what I mean? Like if they were actually directly taking the bones out and then putting, that would be great. I wouldn't complain if I went to like a barbecue place and they had a rib sandwich and they were like getting very tender ribs and then sliding the ribs out and then presenting it, I wouldn't say, where were the bones? But <laughs> the, in this case, you know that they there's not a McDonald's employee in the back sliding the ribs out before they cook them. So I think that would be my, my larger issue. But I don't know. It's just one of those weird things. 
I feel like it's also one of those things, as with a lot of things that happen with in society, where people, certain people feel like they are supposed to like it. You know what I mean? Like being passionate about the McRib makes you interesting. I think I think that's what <laughs> I, don't know. I think that's what bothers me more. <laughs> All I know is speaking of sliding the the bones out, the, one of the best appetizers I ever had was in New Orleans. We went to Emerald Lagasse's restaurant. And he had this woman who her only job at the restaurant was to remove the bones from chicken wings. And she would remove them and they would stuff them with sausage. So they'd be like sausage stuffed chicken wings. And they were phenomenal. <laughs> Those things were fire. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that both sounds like it could be nice and that it could be sort of disgusting but i'll take your word for it that in this instance it was nice all right well i'll talk to you later see ya. see ya.